Welcome to Sound Lore, the official podcast of Indiana University's Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology, where we talk about recent scholarship, ideas, current happenings, and many other interesting tidbits. I'm Amanda Luke. And I'm David McDonald. Today on Sound Lore, we begin a new series, Tales from the Field, where we speak with young scholars conducting field research in folklore and ethnomusicology. In our first installment, Jeremy Reed discusses his recent fieldwork in Jordan. Jeremy is currently a PhD candidate in ethnomusicology here at Indiana University. Now returned from 18 months of ethnographic fieldwork supported by a Fulbright Fellowship, Jeremy discusses his time researching music festival productions as sites for examining contemporary Jordanian politics. Welcome to Salnor. As you heard, today we're talking with Jeremy Reed about fieldwork and his dissertation. So, Jeremy, can you give us a brief rundown on who you are and what it is exactly that you do? Hi, um, I'm Jeremy Reed. I'm a uh, something year uh, in the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology on the ethnomusicology side. Um, and I think these days during quarantine, I am uh, more of a baker than I am a PhD candidate. But when I am a PhD candidate, uh, I'm working on a dissertation that explores music festivals in Jordan as kind of a metaphor for certain trajectories in contemporary Jordanian history, uh, focusing on particularly their national festival, but then also, um, you know, some smaller festivals that have emerged uh, kind of in the shadow or under the influence of, of, of that national festival. Um, spent about two years in Jordan between uh, three three trips between 2013 and 2019. And uh, yeah, I'm trying to eventually finish this thing. So you said since 2013, I hadn't noticed that long ago. How'd you start getting into research in Jordan? So my undergrad, um, a place called Earlham College, which is on the other side of Indiana, um, on the border of Ohio. So two things, at least in my mind, distinguish or three things rather distinguish Earlham from other smaller liberal arts colleges. One, it has a substantial international student population. Within that student population, it has a large number of Palestinian students. And then within that, um, there are a broad number of uh, study abroad opportunities, um, including one to Jordan. And I, I came into things um, with kind of a, a vague interest in music in the Middle East um, I come from a conservative Jewish background, and I had spent you know, a couple years prior to that kind of unpacking um, some of the received narratives um, and ideas that I had about um, Israel-Palestine and um, kind of foreign policy in, in the Arab world. And the way I was trying to get into kind of unpacking some of those ideas was through music. Um, actually, at the time, specifically, uh, the music of some of the classic Egyptian artists. And luckily, my advisor was just a, you know, a, a phenomenal advisor in his own capacity, but was also the advisor for the Jordan program. And so when he figured out my interests, you know, he pretty much groomed me right from the start to eventually get to that point of being prepared with Arabic, with being prepared with um, some some basic field skills to go on a study abroad trip in 2013 and to be able to conduct 
um, research, at least to the best of my undergraduate ability. Um, so yeah, went, went in the spring of 2013, stayed throughout the summer, um, and then uh, returned a few years later in 2017. Um, at, at that point, I was in grad school. Um, but the crazy thing about Jordan is that you know, social connections are an incredibly important thing. Uh, some people frame it in terms of social clout. I, I guess, I guess some uh, some people might say, but who you know is very important. But more importantly, who you know is also a very durable thing. So if you meet someone and you put time into that relationship, into that friendship, um, that's pretty much a connection for life and a friendship for life. And people that I met in 2013. I'm still working with, even though it's a very different project that I'm working on now from way back then, I was working on a project on alternative Arabic music in Jordan. Um, but, you know, I attended a festival at that time with some of those folks and I'm still intimately connected. They are still intimately connected in my research you know, into this day and people that my um, advisor at the time had introduced me to prior to going are still instrumental to my work. In fact, one of the first people he introduced me to, a percussionist named Nasser Salama, uh, well, it turns out, A, he knows uh, Dave, which is another kind of head trip, but um, he wound up being my kind of commanding supervisor uh, working for a festival uh, in 2019. So that's, I mean, that's one of the things that keeps on you know, drawing me back to Jordan is the, it's that, it's that sense of connection and that sense of, even though a lot in Jordan has changed since that, in 2013, there's a sense of, you know, a relationship that has grown and you know, is continually uh, built upon. So when you went in 2013, did you go on your own or as part of a group? It was part of a group. Okay. Um, it was kind of a private study abroad program. Earlham put theirs together with assistance from a couple of other established programs. So we kind of poached uh, a couple of um, teachers from different programs, but then also made use of a couple of um, kind of uh, study abroad administrators that helped us out. Um, so we were somewhat attached to a couple of other programs, but we were on our own for the most part. See, I'd imagined like trying to think of a study abroad experience or a field research experience where you're on your own for the maybe the first time. Was that in 2017? Um, well, in, in 2013, I was the only I was the only guy on the trip, and it was me and eight girls. And the way curfews work, it's not like they couldn't go out after certain hours. Um, but there was a bit more social anxiety from their families about sending, you know, kind of a, a 20, 21 year old, um, out on their own. So I, I, I wound up having a bit more, I guess, social latitude. So in, in some ways I, I was very much on my own. Um, that at the time, you know, I had, I had been to Turkey prior to that, but it, that was definitely the farthest I'd been from home. And not to kind of quote unquote romanticize the East or romanticize kind of arrival narratives. There, there is a sense when you go 
it's like in Lord of the Rings when uh, Samwise realizes that, you know, like they're about to be the farthest, you know, they've been from the Shire. There is definitely a sense of, oh, now you've done it. You've, uh, you know, crossed the third threshold and you're a bit farther from home then. And especially, um, you know, that was probably the... It was, it was probably one of the greatest instances of kind of culture shock or just realize you know a different alphabet um the the way the days of the week work are slightly different because it's um a majority muslim country uh, the first day of the week begins on sunday and ends on thursday because friday is their holy day so there are a bunch of different orientations and you've got the uh call to prayer that's going on five times a day uh, which kind of gives you a different sense of um, when time is being punctuated versus, say, you know, the clock tower on campus. Um, so there were definitely, you know, multiple instances of kind of realizing that I, I wasn't, um, you know, quote unquote, at home anymore. But you can also have those experiences when you're working at a festival for the first time um, or like on your own um, with like a major event production task. Yeah, I wanted to ask about, okay, how did you end up working at a festival and how did that go? Yeah, that was its own trip. Um, I mean, I was just thinking uh, in terms of working for Lotus um, or, or, or another festival, there are times where you, you've gone through the rehearsal and now you're finally you know, on production night. And you know, the first time you do that, it, it, you, you definitely have nerves because you know if something goes wrong, it, it's going wrong. Um, but in terms of working for a festival in Jordan, it was the connection with Nasser. And okay, here's another crazy story that is attached to that. So the friend that I was living with between 2018 and 2019 was someone that I had met back in 2013. And we kept in touch over the years. And when I was going to be in Jordan for a Fulbright program, rather than wait to get there and kind of try to scout out a place on my own. I had spotted that he was looking for a new roommate. So I immediately got in contact with him and had that arranged before I got to Jordan in, in 2018. So that, you know, was one load off my shoulders. But then meeting our landlord or the guy that we were renting from, who was his friend, so, so, so this guy's name is Ahmad, and he happens to have played in a band at one point with um, Nasser, uh, the guy I just mentioned, as well as a couple of other folks. Mm -hmm. And his uncle um, is the director of a music school, and his uncle had written a master's thesis on one of the festivals that I wanted to work with. So already, this is kind of falling into place. My, head a bit and um eventually so I, I finally get in touch with his uncle and we work out a working relationship where i get access to some of his prior research and you know i could work with him in producing aspects of the festival that he was put in charge with and at the time i thought okay i'm, I'm going to get access to the opening night because that's what he's been put in charge of and then i have to kind of find my own way and about a month out from the festival, he tells me, I'm, I'm no longer working at the festival. Um, some things went weird. Um, it's definitely some weird off-the-record stuff. Um, he says, but 
the person you should talk to is this guy, Nasser Salama. I was like, oh, I, I, I know Nasser. He's like, okay, talk to Nasser and, and he can help you out. So I go meet up with Nasser and I'm like, hey, I, I just heard from Ayman, Ahmad's uncle, um, that you're working with Jarosh. Uh, this year he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm in charge of, so, so there are two main venues and he's in charge of the smaller one. I said, I'm doing this dissertation and I would love to like shadow you. He's like, I'll, I'll get you a pass. You can be my personal assistant. And yeah, you can be there for as much and all of it as you want. Um, so yeah, let's do it. And you know, that's one of the great things about you know, Jordanian and Arab hospitality is if you ask for something and it's within their ability to do it, they'll, I mean, if they could give you the moon, they would. So that's how I got involved with the festival. And I wound up traveling back and forth between Jarish and Amman with Nasser and a bunch of other folks in his uh, Tesla X, like like the Tesla SUV. And yeah. the road between Jarish and, and Amman is, is pretty empty. So like on nights where he was particularly annoyed with something, he would just... Um, I'm trying to remember what the name of the different speeds are on the Tesla, but it's Elon Musk, so it's all a joke. And, and so there's like ludicrous speed, um, which pretty much takes you from like zero to like 90 miles an hour within like two seconds. It's pretty stupid. And it's the kind of thing where you feel like you're like pulling a G. Um, I can't imagine. But so, uh, you know, that aside, yeah, that's how I got involved with the festival. Um, so... And you have a clip from your field work, right? This is, you said, 47 Soul, one of the groups that you worked with. And they're performing at the Al Balad Music Festival in 2017.
one of those things where I'd written in my uh, dissertation proposal, I'm going to work with this festival, and I'm going to get involved, I'm going to be a volunteer, I'm going to leverage the experience that I had with Lotus, I'm going to do all this stuff. And when you're writing a dissertation proposal, you're really just hoping for the best. You're kind of writing out the best case scenario if all things go well, with full knowledge that it might not go as you think it does. And, you know, by and large, it did not. But that was one thing where I said, I'm going to do this thing. And now I have a badge that says Jeremy Reed, uh, Jarish Festival Administration, which is way too lofty of a title. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and, and, so, and so I was basically a stagehand for, I was a stagehand for the smaller of the two theaters. And... Yeah, I did everything from uh, kind of managing some of the backstage stuff and hospitality um, to helping direct people on stage and telling them where they needed to go, uh, putting the stage together. Um, and for the most part, I was just kind of left to my own devices. Um, so that meant uh, if I was guiding a group of folks, uh, I actually had to deploy the Arabic that you know I've, I've been picking up all this time. Um, and I definitely learned more. You know, I, I've been in Arabic classes since 2010, and I definitely you know, learned more useful uh, Arabic vocabulary um, in that 10-day span than I had in you know, like like the few months prior to that. Um, yeah, no, that was, I, I still have dreams about that actually. Um, I, I still have dreams about you know, kind of being around the backstage and you know I. 
Yeah, I have a bunch of footage, um, both uh, official footage and, and footage that I took uh, from the festival. And from the like the official television broadcast of like the opening night of the festival, you can see me in the background um, in, in some of the by, by theater. I mean, um, a, a Roman amphitheater. It's in an archaeological park. And yeah, in, in some of the archways, you can like see me moving around. And it's just one of those things where, you know, I, I've now become part of that history in a way. And uh, it's just something that's you know, fun to think about. And it's one of the things that keeps me going when I'm writing some of the stuff is, is thinking like I, I not only got to see it because I attended the festival prior to that, but, you know, I actually got to be involved in some capacity you're part of the history for the other people that were there too. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm in so many random selfies with, you know, <laughs> like some of the guards and some of the stagehands. I mean, I was just talking about this with Dave and like, I, there aren't that many people that look like me that are wandering around Jordan and certainly not that many people that look like me wandering around in the places that I'm in. Um, there are plenty of Asian descendant individuals. Most of them are either um, Korean, um, church tourists or uh there's the 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 menial labor staff um there's a large number of filipino individuals who take care of like house cleaning and stuff mm -hmm. like that um but apart from that you know i i look foreign um i have long hair so that also sets me apart and my arabic is enough to get me by without needing someone else there. Um, so I'm just a strange individual to everyone around me. And I'm also a novelty in that regard. Um, so people remembered who I was. And did that make the field work part like easier or harder? Uh, both. Um, you know, my face is memorable. Um, and because of that, um, my requests, I think, got a bit farther than they might have otherwise. Um, you know, you've got an, an American Asian individual look interested in this kind of stuff and he speaks Arabic. That's going to stick with people a bit more than, you know, the blonde hair, blue eyed person that is trying to is trying to get by. And then on, on the other hand, you know, I would walk around and, you know, kids would point at me and say, are you? are you Chinese? Are you Japanese? And they're saying this in Arabic. And I, I, I would respond in Arabic back at them. And uh, sometimes I would include a joke. Sometimes I would just like snip at them. But just the act of, hey, are you some Japanese individual? Something in Arabic. And then they're like, whoa, there's uh, my head exploding. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it went both ways. Um, uh, during the time I visited uh, a colleague of ours, uh, Chris Johnson in India, um, and I'm also, because it was over New Year's, I'm also in like eight gazillion selfies because we were at a beach in Kerala and on New Year's Day, we're just waiting in the water and like every few seconds someone comes up to us and like puts out their phone like, Happy New Year! Yeah. <laughs> Like okay, I'll, I'll I'll never see this photo, mm -hmm. but you know I'm sure they're showing it off to their friends. Weird thing to think about your life after the photo. Yeah.
I'm curious about what the experience was like working at the festival in comparison to Lotus. I'm also curious about the process of actually taking field notes and trying to be a researcher as well as a festival person, as well as just this, as well as just yourself. Yeah, well, I mean, I can answer both, especially since the first one is is um, is a pretty short answer. I mean, very different. Uh, when I was working with Lotus, um, I was working as their artist liaison, and I was given a vast amount of um, administrative responsibility. Um, did you work that position? Mm-mm. I've worked as stage manager. Uh-huh. So it... It's kind of like the stage manager task, but for the whole festival, um, you're responsible for all of the artist schedules, all of their activities, being the connection point between them, the festival, WFHB, and, and folks like that. Um, so I was I was responsible for the uh, the logistics and hospitality for 25 artists with the festival in Jordan. So. I wound up working at two festivals, um, and in both cases, I was somewhere in between a volunteer and a personal assistant, um, depending on um, what the day was and what the needs were. Um, even though my Arabic is capable, I don't think I, I don't think I would have been comfortable being in a administrative or directorial mm-hmm. capacity. Yeah. Um, there are just too many things that could go wrong. And the the other thing, I mean, the bureaucracy over there is intense, like especially on that first couple of days. Um, all of the folks from the Ministry of Tourism and Antiquities and from the Ministry of Culture were there in force and attaches to attaches to deputy officers and, and everyone. Uh, and then try not to sound too glib about this. I mean, there's a lot of posturing in suits. Um, so there's a kind of a social bureaucracy that I don't think I would have been able to navigate. Um, so yeah, just to put brackets around that, but, um, to focus a bit more on, on the second question, um, I mean, that's usually the hardest part because you don't want to, I've had moments in the field where I've spent a lot of time, uh, behind a camera, um, trying to make sure that I have as much visual data as possible. But the problem with even if you're at a concert and everything's happening on stage, there's all the stuff that's happening around you and you can only capture as much as is inside of the frame of your camera. Um, It still doesn't um, give you the data of having heard something um, in your kind of echolocation sense off here versus this thing happening here and the combination or uh, overlap of all of that. So I've had those experiences. I've also had moments where um, it's not really uh, socially polite to be there with a notebook or to be there with uh, something recording. Yeah. Sometimes you're out. I mean, I, I, I would have nights where I would come back at three o'clock in the morning sometimes from the festival, sometimes from just, you know, events being out with friends. And, you know, you may not be in a mood to, you know, jot things down at that point. Um, if I'm hanging out with folks that are around my age or um, with, you know, like there were a few nights hanging out with 
older and uh, older individuals, but um, Christians, so they're uh, comfortable with drinking alcohol. So we would, you know, you know drink until two o'clock in the morning, and uh, that. I mean, then you definitely don't want to sit down and you know jot down everything that happened, but you also really need to in case you don't remember. Um, it, it's it's a balance. You find times to uh, get off to the side and jot things down. Um, sometimes people will say something to you and you really want to either get it on record so you can get the exact wording or you want to just jot it down right then, right there, but you need to wait till you can kind of get off to the side. But then what are you missing? Um, one of the tricky things about working with festivals is, I mean, I mean, one of the things I love about them and one of the things that I emphasize in my research and the kind of theory aspect is the polyphonic, multivocal, multisensory, chaotic aspect of it. If you don't have that, to me, you don't really have a festival. There isn't supposed to be order um, in the sense of, you know, it's it's such kind of a, a churning sensorial experience where there are structures, but the point of it is just to kind of experience it as it's happening. It, getting a sense for that uh, can be very difficult and putting that into words can be difficult. And then, you know, I was working, especially in this uh, smaller theater, which is only one part of a broader multi-venue festival. Then suddenly I would, you know, after getting through two performances where I really had to be in the moment, in that moment, directing people and making sure that this mic got placed at this time and this person knew where to go. And then I would go into the main square and suddenly realize, oh, man, there is a whole other half to this festival that I'm not even thinking about right now. And and then you get this um, you know, sense of pressure as someone writing a dissertation or someone that's conducting this sort of research. To what extent am I supposed to know literally everything? Sometimes you read a dissertation or you read you know, a, a monograph in, you know, I, I I know you're not supposed to come away with this and I know you're not supposed to try to project this, but a sense of like omniscience about everything that's going on. And you know, academia is filled with all sorts of, you know, you know, cocky, overconfident individuals. And at a certain point that kind of has to be, well, it doesn't have to be, but, you know, in order to, I think, successfully make it, intellectual arguments for the significance of something, you have to have a certain amount of um, vague overconfidence. Um, As opposed to the cliche version of the not self-confident grad student. Right. Or all the memes from like the Lego grad student of, I don't know what this paper says, but I'm turning it in anyway. Like at some point you have to go from, I don't know, to I have to act like I know because this is the information that you have. Yeah, I would say that imposter syndrome is at an all-time high by the time you get to the dissertation phase. And and, and it's really kind of a complex place to be, um, writing the largest project of your academic career to date, not broadest, you know, in your lifetime, um, but to date. And you're doing it largely alone. You know, I've I've conducted some follow-up interviews. Um, I've done some kind of dissertation writing groups. 
but for the most part, you're on your own. And, you know, I was, I was asking Dave about this as well, um, like how we might address this particular kind of culture going forward. Because I think our department is very good at keeping the cohorts together, um, moving through coursework. But, you know, the dissertation is both similar and different from papers you've worked on in the past. It's a much longer argument. It's a big argument that's sustained over more pages, but somehow it feels different. And on top of that, you're doing it in, well, now in almost near absolute isolation. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a tricky thing trying to navigate that sense of imposter syndrome while also being tasked with this large scale, single authored piece in an environment that is no longer as immediately collegial as it was in the you know prior three mm-hmm. or four years when you come back from the field you don't really have that many options um so being around the department is really on your own terms yeah tell me a bit more about yeah coming back and you're back in town but the only one of your cohort and you're still at iu so what was it like transitioning back to bloomington picking up another job that you're doing in addition to your dissertation well, you know, I'm very fortunate that I was able to find a job at the, so it, it's the Center for the Study of Global Change. And the broad kind of directive that I was given was to coordinate their graduate student program, uh, or not program, their graduate student group, to help work on our uh, our media project titled Muslim Voices. It's basically a platform for for, for individuals around the world uh, from an Islamic perspective to you know, kind of shift the needle on, uh, on, on perceptions of, of Islam. So I was, I was tasked with being part of that. And, you know, by and large, it actually gives me a lot of freedom and latitude to A, create programming that is uh, potentially useful for me um, as a grad student that has been doing research in a global setting, um, but then also to work with... Um, uh, Muslim individuals from around the world, uh, which is intimately connected to my work. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, the work uh, or, or the employment aspect, um, you know, isn't too far afield from uh, where I am situated as, as a grad student. Um, but it's also not in the department. Um, I've tried to make sure that all of the stuff that I program could be useful to folks in our department if they so choose. Um, but it also gives me a lot of time to, you know, work on my own stuff if, uh, you know, if, if I had the motivation to do it, which is, you know, the seed where it's the core of your question. Um, you know, there's culture shock in coming back. You know, there's no question about that. But this had been my, I'd, I'd returned from this place before. And I, even though this was the, Longest amount of time I'd spent away from home. Um, I, I come from, uh, I was born in England. My family has, has traveled quite a bit. Um, so the travel aspect and the kind of shifting back and forth between uh, different contexts is something that I'm familiar with. Um, but at the same time, kind of landing and kind of having this task of trying to wrap my head around this year of stuff. And I'm thinking back to another question you asked. 
you know, in, in some ways, the familiarity that I had with Jordan um, both assisted me, but also it, it's not, it's not that it's an old hat, but maybe I wasn't um, as tuned into everything in the same way that I could have been if um, I had less experience. I, I wound up following some familiar grooves and working with some familiar people which I don't think that necessarily uh, negatively impacts my data. No. Um, but it also meant that there were occasionally things that I would find out after the fact that I don't necessarily know if I would have been more attuned to that if I hadn't immediately had an inclination to go one way rather than the other. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But um, yeah, getting back was, it was harder than I anticipated. I think part of it was the project. I think part of it was, um, you know, as I said, imposter syndrome is at an all-time high at this stage. Um, and you know, I've been fortunate to you know have a partner who's been incredibly supportive um, and an amazing cheerleader throughout all of this. And my advising relationship with Dave has also you know grown in surprising ways um, over these past few years. Um, and you know we've had a lot of really helpful conversations in the past two months in particular about the mental health aspects of taking on a project like this um, and how difficult it can be in ways that are surprising considering the amount of training and skill development that you know, you've meaningfully accomplished in the prior four years. You mentioned not really uh, feeling comfortable with maybe uh, let's have a joke about Baudrillard and Simulacra or talk about spectacle or, uh, you know, talk about, you know, you know theories of deterritorialization. But you eventually, by the time you're done with you know, the bulk of your coursework, you will be familiar with what you need to know and, and you will know how to, look at something you don't know and either know how to unpack it for your own understanding or to see it and go, mm, actually, I don't think that will be particularly useful for me. Yes, it sounds uh, complicated and interesting, like actor network theory or uh, science and technology studies. And uh, things I am trying to wrap my head around to see if they're going to be useful. Yes. Right. It's like, oh, well, is festival administration and as a structure, its own um, kind of uh, agentive entity within all of this that we're interacting with could be. Um, but by the time you get to that point, you'll have a better sense for, you know, that's a fun idea, but that is, that is not where we're going with this. <laughs> Having someone to you know, take your idea and give you their take on it, like Sue would or like Dave does, or... Dr. Dirksen or or Daniel or I mean I mean any of these folks, uh, they'll, they'll they'll ask you questions and or or say like hey what about this and then that's your new direction to kind of go off on, um, and and sometimes you'll read something like oh there's a great book called Playing for Change, uh, which is about music festivals in in Canada written by Michael McDonald and. It is one of the most complicated philosophical theory, whatever is about festivals I think I've ever read. And for the most part, um, 
very little that applies to what I do, but there are certain ideas um, that, you know, in terms of, in terms of the theory kind of open you up to um, certain perspectives and then you have to find ways, um, you know, if you, if you want to pursue that particular theory thing, uh, that's your choice, but there's also the avenue of, okay, how do I take that idea, strip it of its terminology and use that as a way of guiding my experience or guiding the way I think about the perspectives of others, like deterritorialization or like the way festivals produce and influence certain kinds of subjectivities within the festival. Like, it's very mechanical and it's a very kind of top-down approach, but it is an interesting way of thinking about, okay, as soon as you cross the boundary point of a festival, you are now a participant um, in your kind of foregrounded sense of identity um, versus where you were on 10th street just prior to that. So th th there are interesting ways of like taking some of those ideas and kind of marching forward without necessarily taking some of the you know, terminology baggage with you. Um, and, and that's something that I do think you know, comes with time. And those are points where you realize that, okay, maybe this imposter syndrome is, uh, is not quite what I thought it was because I'm able to process these things. Whereas I might not have been able to, you know, four years ago. And then, then you meet someone else who totally sends you right back to square one. Um, like, oh, I, th I thought I was doing just fine. And he just ran circles around me. Great. And so you have to develop that over that little bit of, I don't want to call it overconfidence. I just want to call it confidence to publish anyway, despite knowing that, okay, someone's going to be able to read this and go, but what about? Right. Well, and that's the point. And yeah, uh, the uh, the perspective that I tried to take going forward is is listening. To, so, yeah, you know, as I said at the beginning, like these days, I think I'm a baker first, but I'm also a amateur cyclist and uh, in some in also fascinations with strength sports. That being to say, that there's a podcast that I listen to, and the guy who's the founder of a strength equipment company and a um, top-ranked uh, powerlifter in his own right uh, was talking about his motto of or, or his his philosophy of not laying down concrete and that you only know what you know because of the trees that people planted before you and they didn't do it with the notion that you're going to pay them for the information and the experience they have it is simply planting um, seeds in the forest and those trees will grow and that will be what you go off of when you in turn lay down your own seeds. When you lay down concrete, when you put it behind a paywall or when you come into it with the confidence that your way is the way or your thesis is the thesis, then that sets you up for all sorts of problems when someone goes, yeah, but what about... And that's really the point. Um, and it's not necessarily confidence in, in your own idea, but it, it's you know, the confidence in your thought right now and the humility to kind of accept the questions that come after that. 
and the you know humility to acknowledge, oh, I didn't think about that. And had I thought about that, this might have turned out differently. So now it's their turn to put their own idea forth so that someone else can then say, yeah, but what about? So where are you at in the dissertating process? So I'm more towards the beginning, even after all these years. So I spend some time reading. I try to spend as much time writing and worrying as little as possible about um, citations. Mm-hmm. Um, and only kind of turn to books when, so for example, kind of skimming through this, this being the Rathledge Handbook of Festivals, uh, which is the 2019 publication. Yeah, trying to be confident about your own ideas, because uh, at the end of the day, this is um, your dissertation, not a lip review. Um, it should be um, a source of guidance for other people that will follow after you. Um, so making sure that you know, at the end of the day, there is as much uh, resource material as possible for folks that are looking at the dissertation for kind of ideas about festival, um, ideas about spectacle, ideas about um, contemporary Jordanian history, um, neoliberal politics, whatever. Um, and so there should be enough information for folks to have something to go off of, because at the end of the day, as I said before, you're trying to you know, plant forest for the next generation and not you know give them a dead end so you know i i spend some time writing and then when i realize that i'm too in my voice um i'll go back to um, interviews and so you know if i have one piece of advice to people that are either you know anticipating that stage or are kind of in the middle of it and struggling um try to externalize as much as possible write things down um by hand um, try to make physical versions of the things you're working with um, so you can actually rearrange them in physical space rather than kind of hold this thought in your head while also trying to rearrange this other thought. And try to do a little bit every day. And I'm not always good about that, but you know, doing piece by piece is really the only way you'll get there. Oh, and also another piece of advice that someone gave me that is eminently useful is um, it's it's your dissertation. That's it. Um, it's not out for publication. It could be. And if your goal is to write the book, then you should write the book. The immense pressure that we put on ourselves you know, to write the next you know, kind of groundbreaking ethnography, it's your dissertation. And, and, that, and that's all it is. And... You know, the theme that's kind of emerged in part of this conversation is you know, to try to weave that or try to walk that line between humility and confidence. Mm-hmm. Be confident that this is your idea, but have the humility to say it's just my dissertation. I, I absolutely love our department. You know, when I walk around SEM, there's, you know, there are cohorts of folks from UCLA or from Chicago or from Penn or or from wherever. But there's something about the Indiana cohort um, that is is always just very special to me, and and our connections seem to be particularly strong from a like a, a friendship level. Something that I'm I, I think I will carry with me, regardless of what my career path is after this, is the relationships I develop with 
you know, colleagues older and younger than me, but then also it's, it's an amazing thing having such a community-based department, even transitioning over to the new building, which you're part of the, you know, cohort of folks that is firmly, firmly institutionalized in the new space. Yeah. Never even was in, never saw the old space. Yeah. I, you know, I, I do think, I do think there's something lost in that, you know, one of the playful ironies about the folklore department is the folklore around the folklore department. And, and I think a lot of people were emotionally devastated by having to move out of that space since folklore as a discipline was pretty much carved out. Point being, I mean, I mean, we're very much like in, in the history for both ethnomusicology and, and folklore. And, and so there is a sense of heritage is the wrong word, but I mean, there is an emotional connection, uh, to the discipline that I think is fostered through being in this space and being with people that have been around our forebears. Um, I mean, it helps that both disciplines are 20th century uh, inventions, as it were. But it, yeah, yeah, there's a sense of connection. And, and I think that goes through the faculty into the students. And um, yeah, and it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful place to be. Soundlore is an official production of the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology at Indiana University, produced by David McDonald and Amanda Luke. Music by Pagliacci and some other clowns. Engineered by Amanda Luke. Questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes? Leave us a message at 812-855-0396. If you haven't already, please subscribe to SoundLore on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded.